So we've come together on the full moon, Upozata, to meditate, chant, listen to the recitation of the Patimokkha. So it's a good occasion to review our own Dhamma practice. Review our sila, review how we've been practicing. It's also an occasion to come together as a group in harmony as Buddhist monks and samaneras training under the Patimokkha discipline. We've been fortunate the last few months to have visits from senior teachers in our Sangha who have kindly given us much of their time with teachings, reflections and just their presence. Having been monks for many years, they have much they can share with us. So now is a good time to reflect back on teachings we've heard or the examples we've seen. Maybe to reflect on and appreciate the value of Kalyanamitta. The value of having noble friends, good friends in the practice, and particularly teachers who have committed themselves their whole lives to the practice and gained much wisdom and peace from their practice. When you have teachers who have um, guided you and supported you, encouraged you in the practice, either close by or from afar, and who provide a good example in the practice, then that in itself is something that's worth a few moments just to stop and recognize our good fortune and maybe to reflect on the value of Kalyanamitta. A good teacher is like a rock that uh, provides some stability in the practice because our own minds, especially in the beginning, are so fickle and prone to mood swings. One moment feeling inspired, one moment feeling depressed or miserable. They provide us with some guidance, having practiced the path, seen the path, realized the path, where we're not yet fully on the path, 
our minds maybe are on the path sometimes and then straying off it. If you have a good teacher, they help bring you back to the path. As Lumpur Samedha reminded us, living with Lumpur Cha, it's like he had a constant reference point, focal point for the practice. Because our tendency in the beginning is to be easily swayed by our moods, by activities around us. If you have a good teacher, they, you can keep referring back to them. They give you some extra strength and help to bring up commitment to the practice. They also share their words of wisdom to help cut through some of the delusions and confusion that we keep getting caught into. So as, uh, with that story about somebody asking Lumpur Cha how he managed to teach Western monks when he didn't speak any English, and he compared them with water buffalo. You, you can train water buffalo without being able to speak their language. You just use a rope tied through a ring in their nose and you pull them. Sometimes you have to pull them to the left, sometimes you pull them to the right to keep them on the right path. So the teacher sometimes has to do that. Obviously our aim is to be able to learn to do that for ourselves, develop our own commitment to the practice, our own experience in training the mind and insight so that we can see for ourselves where we need to pull ourselves back onto the path. Learning to be observant enough to see where the mind is straying from the Dhamma towards back towards the world and the suffering that attachment to the world brings. So the Buddha pointed out the vital role Kalyanamitta plays in our practice. We also have to in internalize that, develop the internal Kalyanamitta meaning the habit of associating with the Dhamma in our minds, in our hearts. Because the Dhamma is that which takes us beyond delusion, beyond suffering. It's the truth. The truth of the way things are. And our practice is about bringing the mind back to the Dhamma inside. We can reflect on a daily basis how much time, mental energy we're spending and directing towards the Dhamma, towards the internal Kalyanamitta. <coughs> how much we're associating with Kilesa, moods, thoughts rooted in greed, anger, delusion. We have to 
train ourselves to bring the mind to the Dhamma, accept truth, give up to the truth. It's the way of the world and our previous conditioning, living in the world, is the opposite. It's based on avicca and delusion, bringing us desire and attachment and ultimately suffering. So we have to work hard to go against that habit, that tendency. So the external Kalyanamitta give us some strength, inspiration and guidance to do that. And then we have to develop the internal Kalyanamitta to go against our own habits and tendencies based on ignorance. The place we live supports that, so we're living in the forest, we're forest monks. When you're surrounded by trees, it doesn't take much reflection to realize any suffering we're experiencing is generated through our own attachment and confusion. And trees don't generate much suffering. They are what they are. They grow according to the laws of biology. They have sunlight, nutrition, water from the nutrition from the ground and they just grow. There's nothing personal about them, nothing to get infatuated with or angry with. They're just trees, part of nature. So it's very peaceful, supportive to be in the forest. We also keep the sila, the Patimokha sila, so that we can live in the forest with other bhikkhus peacefully, harmoniously. We learn to restrain our speech, our actions, so that we're not creating harmful ripples in our own mind and in the minds of others that just confuse us, cause us regret, agitate the mind. And we learn to interact with the people around us skillfully, peacefully. So with the peace and quiet of the forest and then the practice of the Patimokasila, we can turn our attention inwards more and more to start uprooting the habits of mind based on ignorance develop mindfulness over and over again, put effort into developing mindfulness and then reflecting on the truth. And once you're practicing the, the sila, even though we still have negative, harmful tendencies and habits arising, they're held in check. So that restraint brings us a sense of being at ease, don't have problems with ourselves, with other people. So we can really look at our own minds more closely. And as we develop mindfulness, develop the practice of meditation, say breathing meditation, you're really bringing your mind just to see the truth, to see Dhamma, moment by moment. As you practice breathing meditation, you mindfully breathe in, mindfully breathe out. You're aware of the body, 
aware of your mind, whatever thoughts, feelings are arising. And developing that ability just to observe, look, watch, and see the way things are without adding on, without creating, because of ignorance and attachment we tend to create. But now developing mindfulness, we're just watching the way things are without adding on, or even getting too involved, even with our own thoughts, learning just to sit and walk, or whatever posture we're in, bringing mindfulness up and just watching whatever the mental activity is, the way the body is, the way feelings are, whatever's coming up, just to observe it. That ability just to know things without getting involved with, or you might say taking things too seriously. You notice when suffering arises, we're taking our own thoughts and emotions very seriously. It leads on to mental karma, building up moods and views and opinions, and then that spills out into speech and actions. And everything becomes very hardened and solidified and seems to be very real when we suffer. The sense of self comes out very strongly. We take everything very personally and it all seems very important. But the more you practice mindfulness, the more you are changing that habit and you're seeing things more as they are, just as conditions physical, mental phenomena arising, passing away, and you don't have to act on every impulse or every thought, don't have to take every emotion so seriously and believe it and make a sense of self out of it. Rather, we're just watching. But using mindfulness, constantly coming back to the practice of mindfulness in all postures. Say when you listen to our teachers speak, especially in Thailand, they have that phrase: you know, you're using mindful awareness to observe rupa and nama, body, mind, mental activity, and to see that these things are just conditions; they're just phenomena. They're not a person. They're not a self, they're not me, mine, a person, a being, mine or yours. They're not a self. They say in Thai, they say, Mai Chai Do, Mai Chai Don, Mai Chai Sat, Mai Chai Bukhon, Mai Chai Rao, Mai Chai Kao. That phrase, Lumpo Chao, would repeat over and over again. It's kind of a verbal expression of equanimity where you are just observing phenomena as phenomena rather than taking it all personally and seriously and taking, making it all into a big self. <clears throat> the opposite of the mind that is caught into dukkha, where there's no insight, no mindfulness, then we just become caught up in our moods, even if they're pleasant, happy moods. If there's no mindfulness, we get caught up in it and it's happiness that's conditioning suffering as it fades. We lose it. And obviously painful experiences are very obviously suffering. 
but with the practice of mindfulness, we're just looking back at the way things are. As the Buddha taught, all formations, all sankhara, and in this sense it can mean physical and mental, they're all impermanent. They arise and they pass away. They have a beginning, a middle and an end. That's the nature of this body and mind and the whole world around us. It's that insight, when it, it becomes clear to the mind, the mind just knows that's the way things are. There's no doubt about it, no fuzziness, blurriness, no speculation. The mind just knows in itself everything that arises must pass away. The only thing that doesn't arise and pass away is Nibbāna, emptiness in the mind that has seen through formations and understood them for what they are. So what does that mean? Well, it means when you're practicing mindfulness on a daily basis, you just get into the habit of instead of following every mood, every thought, every impulse, following the different views and attachments to the body, to the mind. We just get used to observing them as Dhamma. In this body, we, the mind and the body are so closely linked because of attachment. You know, if we don't practice the Dhamma, we never question the fact that mind and body are different things. There's no separation of rupa and nama normally for the unenlightened person who hasn't listened to Dhamma, doesn't have any respect for Arya Pugala, doesn't think of following the path, and they just assume mind and body are one thing, human being. And there's no awareness of arising and ceasing and the impermanence of things. It's just reacting to it. So there's the fear of illness, fear of pain, fear of death. There's the clinging to all the different kinds of pleasure and pleasurable experiences, the running away from unpleasant experiences. That's just the way we are when we haven't seen the Dhamma, haven't heard the Dhamma, we just act in that way. But as we come to practice like this, we're learning through the development of mindfulness, we bring the mind to quietness, stillness, where it can look more deeply into our experience. And we're seeing this body is actually Rupa Dhamma, it's material phenomena, it's not mine, myself, a being, a person, mine or yours, it's a collection of elements, four elements, earth, air, fire, water, come together and they come together because of the power of karma, because of our ignorance, desire, attachment. Well, human beings get born. We were born. But in its essence, it's just four elements. And those four elements are subject to change. They're sankhara, dhamma. So they come together and they're constantly changing, altering, even if we're not ill or injured already, the body itself, it, just by its nature, is changing. If we stop, 
take a look at that as we practice mindfulness, we start to notice that fact, and that's training the mind, educating the mind to understand and accept the truth that the body is impermanent. What is impermanent is dukkha. It doesn't last. It's painful. It's difficult to be with and therefore not worthy of attachment and yet because of ignorance we attach and call it me, mine, myself. We take ownership of it, identify with it. As we practice more mindfulness, investigate the truth, then we're rolling back that false perception all the time, challenging it, questioning it. It it becomes more obvious to the mind that This body is not a self, me, mine, myself, being a person. It's a collection of four elements that go according to their nature. It's bound to age. It's bound to get injured or sick according to the different things we're exposed to and according to our karma. And it's bound to die. There's absolutely nothing any being or any person can do about that. There's nothing a human being can do to stop aging, sickness and death. It's just the way it is. And yet the mind doesn't accept that. Why? Because it keeps getting caught into delusion over and over again. Building up, you might say, a false hope in this sense of self, this sense of me, and the identification with the body. So on the one hand, this insight, you might say, is very ordinary. Just noticing the impermanence of the body, the aging, the sickness, the ultimate death. It's just ordinary. On the other hand, it's the most profound insight we can have, because it changes the whole view of the mind, the whole perception and way it looks at the world and we look at ourselves. It leads to this sense of peaceful observing rather than taking ownership of everything. You're just peacefully observing and it's as if the mind steps back from the body and everything else. Obviously the more refined sense of self that forms around mental activity takes more more refined mindfulness, more refined investigation. But the process of letting go is the same. Applying mindfulness, observing, investigating the truth and seeing Vedanas of its nature, it arises, it ceases. However many times you have pleasure, that truth doesn't change. Nobody can interfere with that truth, change it. The truth is the truth, the Dhamma is the Dhamma. We might cover it over with wrong views, mistaken views, our hopes and our aspirations and our attachments, but in the end the truth is the truth. Feeling arises and ceases, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, it's all the same. Mental states arise and cease. Pleasant emotional states, positive emotional states, unpleasant negative emotional states, feeling happy, feeling miserable, 
feeling calm and peaceful, feeling agitated, feeling kindness, compassion, feeling anger. Mental states are mental states, they arise, they cease. As the mind awakens to that truth, and it, little by little it wants to pull back from the attachment to this sense of ownership and the self. There's more this sense of just watching on. And we still practice living in the world in a skillful way, so we can still bring up wholesome mental states. But there's also the awareness they are just what they are. They're just states, mental states that arise, that cease. Is that kind of insight that gives these teachers their strength to keep practicing, teaching, traveling, helping others, running monasteries and so on. Because even any feelings of tiredness that come up as they do that, well, they also come under the scrutiny of mindfulness and insight. Feelings are just feelings. So tired feelings are just tired feelings. There's no need to, you don't see them getting angry because they feel tired. They just know tired is like this. Maybe you have a rest when you're tired, but you don't let the mind become conditioned by the tiredness and according to say negative moods, feeling depressed, bored, fed up, whatever, and just no tiredness feels like this. Probably they gain a lot by teaching others, gain a lot of wisdom. See the Dhamma at work, not only in their own minds, their own body and mind, but they see the Dhamma in other people that they come into contact with. And see everybody's in the same boat. Once you're born as a human being, if you still have the unenlightened mind, then you keep falling into this attachment to every mood, emotion, every thought, every view and opinion, every feeling of pleasure and pain. We just keep grasping at it and get very confused, strung out by it. If we're honest, if we're true and see that, see what happens. And we keep creating karma, keep hoping to establish some kind of lasting self that somehow will outrun the truth, something that will last, that we can have control. If we can't achieve it in this life by becoming kind of rich and famous and powerful, then we hope to have it in the afterlife, so in eternal heaven. But as long as there's this basic wrong view that there's a self, a lasting, enduring essence or self, then we keep falling into disappointment, we keep falling back. As the Buddha pointed out, whatever rebirth we achieve, whether as human or deva, brahma, it doesn't last. It's still a sankhara, and the sankhara in, in its nature, in its essence, arises and passes away. No way around it. Even if you try and fool yourself, convince yourself that there's something permanent in Sankara, it doesn't work. Sooner or later you're caught out. Even heavenly rebirth doesn't last. The bliss of Samadhi doesn't last. 
the mental states that arise associate with with the, the, the bliss of samadhi, the pity and sukha doesn't last. It's not wrong, but it's not permanent. So as Lumpur Chao used to say, we're training to develop right view, correct view, skill based on mindfulness and insight, reflecting on the Four Noble Truths, reflecting on the three characteristics. You train yourself to apply that to your daily experience, living in the monastery, living in the world. Little by little that insight becomes established. Obviously only the Arahant has completely seen the nature of all physical mental phenomena as an dukkha anatta. But that doesn't mean to say we can't also do that right now. We can do it with whatever's arising. We keep training to observe the way things are and the mind is gradually coming to accept the truth. You might say it's gives up to the truth or surrenders to the truth. You know, when we're suffering, we're unhappy in one way or another or confused. It's because we haven't given up to the truth. When you give up to the truth, there's no more struggle. The mind just knows and it accepts and the heart goes cool, peaceful, because it accepts the truth. Oh, everything is impermanent. All conditions are impermanent. And you just have to accept that, so you let go. Letting go comes from seeing or accepting the truth. The result of letting go is coolness, peace of heart. It's the nature of Nibbana. It's the extinguishment of heat, the suffering that the Buddha compared to like heat or fire. It's like it's been extinguished, like when you pour water on bonfire. It just goes out and it goes cool. That coolness is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's what the heart craves. It comes through seeing, truly seeing the way things are. The mind is, accepts the truth, it just knows, ah, this is the way it is. There's no more grasping, no more creating karma and suffering all of, with all the different experiences we have. And the mind keeps going to coolness becomes so familiar with coolness that it's that's just its normal kind of default mode is to go to coolness rather than to keep stirring up more heat, more suffering. However long it takes for the fire to completely go out, well, it just depends on our karma, the efforts we put into the practice. But once we have this right view established, then, then the mind just keeps practicing, keep going in that right direction, correctly viewing the way things are. No longer creating extra or additional suffering. Obviously we have to be patient with the body we have, the situation we have, because this is where we're at, we're here now. But the wise person doesn't create fresh suffering or more suffering out of their condition. You don't need to throw any further fuel onto the fire. You just let what's there burn out quietly until it goes completely cold. And we're finished with all, all of the suffering.
of the world. So I'll uh, leave you with those reflections tonight and we can do some chanting. <laughs>